0: Hey guys, welcome to Money Moves with Gen Z for financial literacy. Money Moves is your go-to podcast for easy to understand lessons on financial literacy topics. Each podcast episode, will cover a new topic with a new expert in the field. Think a teacher, an accountant, or a finance professional. I'm Matt Shadeed.
1: I'm Stephen Lin, and we're your hosts. Today's guest is Neil Godfrey. Neil is an executive in residence at the Columbia Graduate School of Business, the former president of the First Woman's Bank and a member of Gen Z for Financial Literacy's Advisory Board. Over the past 35 years, Neil has worked tirelessly to connect the family around the topic of money. An author of 28 books, Neil is most recognized as the New York Times best-selling author of Money Doesn't Grow on Trees, a parent's guide to raising financially responsible children. Neil has also served on the White House Task Force, as well as on the Board of Directors of the New York Board of Trade, UNICEF, the University of Charleston, and UN Women. Neil has so much knowledge and expertise to share with you all. We're so glad you decided to tune in today.
2: It's wonderful to be here. Um, Basically, in terms of my background, I was one of the first female executives in banking in the United States, starting my career in 1972 at age 21 with Chase Manhattan Bank, when they decided that it made sense to try to have an experiment to hire a few women to become executives. I did become an executive at Chase and I was able to do um, a lot of work there as an executive, headed up a global division in the corporate bank There's a cat in the background who wants to be on too, and um, did some very big merger and acquisition work. In fact, put together at that point at Chase in 1980, the largest merger that had ever taken place, the DuPont Conoco merger. And it was the first time we did billions of dollars. In fact, I had to have the Chase computers reprogrammed to be able to take the extra three zeros of billions, and we actually influenced the money market, the rate um, of the dollar, uh, because we had so much money flooding into the market in those days. I left after 13 years and became president of the first woman's bank. And we needed a woman's bank because the Fair Credit Act had not been enacted until 19... 74. And before that time, women could actually not get credit on their own name. In fact, my first credit card at Chase Manhattan Bank, and I was an executive, uh, had my husband's name on my credit card with a permission slip from him for me to use my own card. And he had no credit because he was a law student. And it was pretty weird. So when you look back over Really, what's happened in the financial world, Um, things have changed, but they haven't really changed fast enough. And I watched women at First Women's Bank be uncomfortable handling their own money, and that seemed goofy. So I did research and found out that it was because we were never taught anything about money when we were children. Mm -hmm. So I had two little kids at that point. I was a single mom, and I went to look for books to teach my own children about money. And there were no books in the 1980s. The topic of teaching kids about money did not exist. It was not being done. So I decided I would change all that and I started writing the books. So I wrote my first book called the Kids Money Book in um, 1989 and I couldn't get a publisher to publish the book because it was not a topic of interest. It didn't exist. So I ended up opening up the first children's bank at F.A.O. Schwartz, a real bank for kids at the toy store and an institute for youth entrepreneurship up in Harlem for at-risk children to bring them into the economy. Both were very successful, went back to Simon & Schuster and said, now will you publish my book? And they said, no. So again, I couldn't get a book published. So what I did was I bought a publishing company. I bought a division of Macmillan and under the proviso, I would run the company if they would publish my book. And since I was chairman of the board, they published the book. Mm. We sold 50,000 copies of the book. I sold the company and went back to Simon & Schuster. And then they took me on as a property. And my next book, which is called Money Doesn't Grow on Trees, A Parent's Guide to Raising Financially Responsible Children was the book that they published. And one day I got a call from Oprah Winfrey and really things changed after that. I worked with Oprah on air. I did 13 shows over four and a half years. That book hit number one in the New York Times bestsellers list and established the topic of teaching kids about money and made it a real topic. And sort of the rest is history. I am now working on my 29th book. And I love the idea that you guys are concentrating on the next generation in terms of Gen Z to get you guys up to speed. So it's great to be here.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think I think what you said was really powerful. I mean, your, your whole journey through being, breaking into uh, the, the whole male dominated kind of Wall Street uh, sphere is extremely powerful. And I think it's a strong ideology to hold of, even if it hasn't been done before, or if it's not precedent, you can still break into things and you can still do things. Because if there's a will, there's a way in the most cliche way. Um, But I think for me, what stood out was the fact that the, the specific thing you said was there, it has never been done before. Like, We never taught kids about money before the 80s, and I think that's what really stands out to me, and that's what we're starting to advocate for, which is for it to be mandated in schools, for every kid to start learning about money, not just ones whose parents decide to take initiative. I think that's where we should be headed, where every kid should have access to it, uh, no matter if they're in the richest part of town or the not- wealthy part of town. And I think that's a huge part of it, just access.
2: Absolutely. And unfortunately, I started lobbying in nineteen, in the 19, late 1980s. I started lobbying in different states around the country to make sure that we could mandate the teaching of financial literacy. Ohio was the first state that mm-hmm. we got to approve it. And Even in our own state in New Jersey, you only have to take two and a half hours and you can take it in your senior year and second semester, senior year. You know what that means for you guys. You've you've checked out. You could care less. You sort of have to show up and that's really pretty much it. So there are only about 20 states in the United States that mandate any teaching of financial literacy. My whole concept is you have to start when they're tiny. So my financial literacy curricula that I created, which was the first money curricula in the United States, and that was also published by Simon and Schuster, now Pearson Education, um, starts with little ones. So preschool and then takes them you know up with different courses through high school. Yeah, exactly. I-
1: And like, I think one of the main things that when younger people are approaching the topic of managing their money is, okay, people tell you save for retirement, open a savings account, take X percent of your paycheck and put in your savings account so you have an emergency fund. But a lot of times people who are in their 20s, even their 30s, don't really see the purpose of doing so when they're young because they're like, okay, I have so many years, retirement is so far off, emergency funds are pretty much useless. When people approach you saying, what's the purpose of doing this when I'm in my teens or in my 20s or even learning about it when they're so young and all these big goals seem so far off, how do you kind of respond to that and explain the importance of a saving or budgeting or saving for retirement at a younger
2: age? What I do is, first of all, I start an allowance system with little tiny kids, you know, three to five year olds. And I teach them that the only way you get money is to earn it. There's no entitlement program out there. So it's not Mm -hmm. just whining for something and you get it. So I start them on a little bit of an allowance. And what they have to do is do chores around the house, which is work. And you get paid for work because that's what mommy and daddy do. The only way you get money is you earn it. So then I teach them to budget it. And a budget is a habit. You don't get to spend all that money. So what I do is I literally have them divide the allowance into different jars or envelopes. And I want the kids to use real tangible money in the beginning. Then they can move to digital money. If you start a kid off with digital money, it doesn't seem real to them. It's like a video game. It's just Mm -hmm. something else that isn't real. So what I do is I tangibly show them. Then I move them into the digital world, obviously, of money. So 10% on the budget they have to give to charity. And then I divide the remaining into thirds. And the next 30% goes to what I call quick cash, which is instant gratification. They worked hard. They get to spend some money. And then I teach them another third goes into medium-term savings, push-off, instant gratification save for something larger that you want and then 30% into long-term savings which is what you're saying Stephen that retirement mm-hmm. that money that goes away i know that you know it's impossible for a 3 year old you know 3 year old or a 10 year old to understand long-term savings well it's impossible for the adults in america to understand long-term savings so it's just something that does need to be saved and it does need to go in there. And I basically mandate it, um, mm-hmm. because otherwise it makes no sense. And what I tell young people in your generation is take a look at your parents, take a look at your grandparents. If they had saved more money, they would be in a better financial position. Yeah. And you don't want to be there. And the fact of the matter is there is no good time to save. There are bad times to save, but there's never going to be a clearing in your life where all of a sudden you go, Oh my goodness, look at all the money I have left over. Yeah. It has to be built into your budget. There's no leftover ever.
0: Yeah. I think that's a, a problem that a lot of teens get into is like, they'll worry about it when they settle down, when they start having families, when they like move to the suburbs, for instance, but if they're living in a city for now, let's say they're working in college they want to have fun they, they they don't really see it as an urgent matter whatsoever and I think what you mentioned about like making it a habit and like ingraining money as part of children's lives is just essentially what we want to do like that that habit part of it the the muscle memory part of it is a lot more important than um, the actual like Oh, like say for a t- start a 401k to a three-year-old that that that, that doesn't really make sense right. or matter no and, yeah. and you
2: know it's interesting there are it's a cultural situation because asian cultures automatically save money germany i remember giving my first speech in germany and they were like i don't understand why you're teaching kids to save we save here it's not an issue mm-hmm. and again mm-hmm. i remember being in China in actually 19, um, well, I was the first time I was in China was in 68, but it was after that in the early 90s. And it was the same reaction. Why do you have to tell people that they have to save money? Of course they save money. They mm-hmm. don't live beyond their means. And I said, it's, it's a cultural thing in the United States. We rack up debt. We're very comfortable with that. We spend money that we actually don't have. And we don't think about savings until, unfortunately, sometimes it's too late.
1: Exactly. And then I think it's like a huge issue that extends far beyond savings because there are also many other facets of personal finance, whether it be investing or budgeting or really just knowing how to handle your taxes or other things that are related to money that a lot of parents and students don't understand. So when you worked at the First Women's Bank and with these families and parents on Oprah, what were the main problems with personal finance, aside from saving, that you found these Americans struggling with to handle?
2: Well, it was very interesting because there's a lot of guilt around money. And Oprah had me work with a bunch of families, and one of them had uh, five kids. And their whole thing was they grew, the parents grew up very poor, and Christmas was something that was very meager. And they didn't want their kids to have to do that. So every year they went into debt and they racked up about $2,500 worth of debt. And it took them a whole year to pay it back. And then they did the cycle again. Mm -hmm. And I said to them, let me work with the kids. Let me get the kids on an allowance. Let me teach the kids what it really means to earn money and how hard you work for it. And we can do a Christmas that is also non-monetary. So in other words, you can think of a clever gift. You could bake cookies for somebody. You could give someone a back rub. You could teach them how to play golf. You could teach them, you know, how to use the computer. Think of things that you can do that don't cost money. And that's what we made Christmas. And the kids loved it. And also what the kids did is they actually pooled some of their money together that they were getting and bought a small TV that they wanted for their rec room. And it wasn't that the parents had, you know, it wasn't that Christmas had nothing. It was just cookies under the the Christmas tree, Mm -hmm. got stuff, but they also worked for stuff and they got it and they started to understand.
1: That's good. So then I guess like another another main issue is that women historically have had a very challenging time like you mentioned before adjusting to money because as you said they weren't allowed to have their own credit cards they weren't allowed to adjust the challenges of managing their money because hey they weren't even allowed to have their own bank account until the 20 until the later parts of the 20th century. So when you worked in the women's bank what challenges in particular did you see that women faced? While we're in terms of financial insecurity, a lack of confidence, and how do you think we've grown and improved and what spaces do we still have to improve in to make women more confident and kind of close the gap between the lack of financial know-how between men and women?
2: It's interesting because women were, as you said, typically at home and they weren't in the workplace. They were raising the children and they were told by the men, don't worry, you're taken care of. Well, that doesn't really mean anything. I don't know what those words mean. Where am I gonna live? What am I gonna eat? Where do I, you know, What does life look like? So women were also at that juncture, not as educated as men, um, just in general. Uh, It was more rare for women to go to college. And now we see a shift. There are more women graduating from college and with higher degrees than men. There are more women who are really taking charge in the workplace and taking charge of their own finances. But a lot of women still feel, you know what, I don't have to get involved in that. Women feel that they have to understand something totally before they get involved with it. And men will just jump in and kind of do it, even if they don't know that much. And money is a big one. And a lot of people will say, uh, you know, I'm intimidated by the stock market. I don't understand it. And then I'll teach them what it is. And they're that's it. That's, that's all I had to know. That's it. And when you look at female investors versus male investors, Female investors do better than men when you invest. And the reason is, is because women want to know what's the money for. It's for something in the future. It's for the home. It's for college for the kids. It's for retirement. It's for something. A man will look at the money part as more of an ego thing and brag about it. Wow. You know, I met some guy who gave me a hot tip and... I had a 56% return that makes women in general nervous because we know if there's a winner, there's also a loser.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: And that's why women are better investors. So now that we're seeing a shift, it's great. It's just great to see.
0: Yeah. And like, I think that's very important hopefully very inspiring for a woman out there listening who may not, completely be um, taking charge of their finances in terms of investing, understanding that it's really something that they can control and something that they can take charge of and statistically better at. Um, But where do you see that we still need to keep improving systematically uh, more than just kind of socially? Like where can we change um, a historical system that has continued to put women down in the personal finance sphere?
2: What we have to do is um, number one, have gender parity in terms of pay. When I joined Chase, my salary was actually reduced because I was told I'm a woman and I'm taking the job of a man. And in those days, um, women earn 66 cents for every dollar a man earned. Today, women earn about 83 cents of what a man earns. That's ridiculous. So we have to stop that right away. In fact, Mm -hmm. I was on the uh, Chris Christie's, Governor Christie's gender parity committee. And he asked me when he was governor, he said, what are your goals? And I said that we don't need a gender parity committee. We shouldn't be having this discussion that women are paid less. That's ridiculous. This is America. So we need to stop that one and by the way it doesn't sound like a big deal when you look at oh 66 cents versus a dollar if you look at my career for the 13 years i was there and then the small uh pension that i get i have lost two million dollars in income over my life that's what the meaning is by me earning less with bonuses and salary and pension. That's huge. That could change my life. That's what we're talking about. So that's one thing. The other thing is we need to talk about money. We make it a big secret. We don't ask people about money. So culturally you guys have to sit down. If you're dating someone and you're having a serious relationship, you should know about what's their income, what's their debt, what, Student mm-hmm. loans do they have? You know, we're going to build a life together, maybe. We need to know. Come clean with each other. And it was easier when I was doing Oprah for us to get people on Oprah to talk about sex than it was to talk about money. Oh because God. money is deemed to be personal. Yeah. And, and I that's think, what-
0: Yeah, yeah. I think the fact that you were the... Or no publishing company took your book about children uh, th- about teaching children money like no publishing company wanted to even touch it chose how rare it was to even it, w- it was taboo like no one no one mentioned it and I think that stems into our society today with grandparents, parents. it still is something not being talked about. I think right. for me yeah I think for me a great way is social media. I think starting to advocate over social media can really change things because anyone can get access to uh, to an Instagram now and see something while they're scrolling, explaining what uh, the stock market is. And it's that quick. They can learn it in 30 seconds to a minute. Uh, and, and it can really change. It's, I think social media will change the course of women in money.
2: Yeah, I hope so. And then obviously we need to mandate it in school. Um, mm-hmm. We have a core curricula and You know, you guys are tested based upon the core curricula, and money, financial literacy, is not part of core. It's not tested. So until it's tested, it's not going to really be taught and be mainstream. So financial literacy should be as important as anything else that you guys are are learning. I'm not saying that trigonometry and calculus and all that stuff is not important, but you know what? A lot of us don't ever use calculus and and trig or physics, but we do use money every single day of our lives. And we need to know about that.
1: Exactly. And like a big part of money is taking on debt. And I know you mentioned before, you know, the unfortunate scenario that whether it be medical debt or credit card debt, people often fall into these debt traps and are unable to recover kind of payback. But a more common one is student loans. You know, people want to go to college, they want to go to university. But hey, college nowadays it costs anywhere from 200k to 350k, even upwards of 400k for a good four-year university. So how do people who are younger now kind of grapple the fact? Okay, I want to move up the socioeconomic ladder. I want to improve myself, bring my family up. But how do I afford going to college and taking on these huge student loans?
2: Well. First of all, I think that the parents and grandparents have to come clean with the kids when they're young to say, look, you can. we can afford to give you X amount of money for a school. It means that you're going to have to go to, let's say, a state school for maybe a couple of years or a community college for a couple of years. This is what it's going to cost. We as a family can start saving and working toward that, but- To come clean. You know, it kills me when you see a kid get into a top private school and then the parents go, I can't afford it. And when you rack up debt, like you're saying, of several hundred thousand dollars, you're starting your life out way behind. I am an executive in residence at Columbia Graduate School of Business, and I work with MBAs. And it costs almost $200,000 to get an MBA at Columbia Graduate School. That is a lot of money. And if you're coming out of undergraduate and you've racked up debt to get yourself through, and then you were, you know, got into Columbia and had to pay, this is a lot of money we're talking about.
0: Yeah. I think there's a lot of societal pressure now though to go to one of these uh, private institutions, but it's just another habit that kids have to form that comes when they're young, that comes from their parents drilling into their just livelihoods, making a part of it, that money is something not that you can borrow $200,000 to go to college, just like that. I think that's what being conditioned to do. And I mean, every statistic ever on student loans, I mean, we every day amass new, uh, like, masses of student loans, somewhere in the trillions. Um, But parents starting to drill that, that not immediately spending, and say, and and understanding every move that you make with money is is something that you can control. And you don't have to spend it every moment that you have is something important for parents to start integrating into their parenting style.
2: Absolutely.
1: And then I think another important thing building off of that is, okay, let's say like once you're in debt or once you face financial struggles, how do you recover from that? Because a lot of people, and I, I know we've touched on this on our previous work, a lot of people fall into unfortunate scenarios, whether it be because of their socioeconomic status, their upbringing, how their parents raised them. How does one kind of grapple with, okay, I was, I was born without the financial know-how or my parents didn't teach me, or I was born with lesser fortunes than other students were. So how did they kind of grapple with bringing, them some, bringing themselves up and learning more about money and kind of being better than their previous generations were if they weren't as fortunate as some of us are now?
2: Well, I, you know, people s- sometimes do fall on hard times, which has nothing to do with them. You know, there are a lot of mm-hmm. medical situations. There are um, situations of losing a spouse or a parent or something, and, and they can you know, fall on big, big hard times. Um, with a lot of our population of color, we have not historically allowed them to own assets. So, a lot of you know, if your great grandparents or great great grandparents were slaves, you weren't allowed to own assets, and and or if you did, a lot of times they were taken away from you. So, owning an asset was not a priority. Which is why we see today with the black population, that and brown that uh, they're not they don't own assets because they can be taken away. So there's a cultural shift that has to take place too, where people understand what that means. And we use the term "living below your means," but that really is what you need to do. We have mm-hmm. one in four people living. Um, And it's probably more than that now, paycheck to paycheck. Um, You never know. And, you know, we've come out of the pandemic sort of, and, you know, you saw the tragedies that took place, losing a million people and how many other people did that affect in terms of, of the family and that we're not prepared in life for those shocks that can take place. So it is a matter, matter of sitting down and saying, what do I want? What are my goals? What do I really want? What do I want my Absolutely. life to look like? Is it yeah. more important to have that cool dinner or car or whatever, or have the security that's going to let me sleep at night? And I'm not saying you have to do one or the other. You can blend them. But the whole point is you choose. I'm not going to tell you what to do. I never tell people what to do. I just tell them the consequences of their behavior. Once you mess up your credit and it's, you can repair it, but it's hard. It costs you more and it takes a long time.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And then I think a lot of things we've talked about today is the importance and kind of your life's work of really focusing on parents, the family from a young age, educating kids on the importance of money and the importance of knowing how to manage your money. Because a lot of the things that talk about in the personal finance space is, okay, how can we get schools to mandate personal finance? How can we hire better teachers who know how to teach personal finance? But there's really only so much a one-semester, two-semester class can teach about personal finance if your parents at home aren't reinforcing the same things, especially from a young age. So in particular, why have you chosen, whether it be through Oprah or the Women's Bank or the Children's Bank, why have you chosen to focus on family And really portray the importance of parents knowing how to manage their money. Parents knowing how to to educate their children through your various books and works.
2: It's a great question because I teach the values and life skills that you're going to need to live in the real world. I would love the schools to be teaching the life skills. They're not doing enough as far as I'm concerned, but values need to be learned at home. So to me, it's a partnership of the parents raising the kids to understand that money is the business part of life and you just have to learn it. And then also partnering with schools, corporations and other people who are going to say, yes, we'll help you. Most of the stuff that I did with school, I did with after school programs with a lot of the curriculum. Because after school, a lot of the kids and at-risk children are there And they don't care if it's not part of the curricula, but they know it's important to teach. So I was very successful dealing with, and I still am, dealing with a lot of after-school programs. But um, we also have, you know, people who feel very entitled that, you know, they're handed, you know, their parents' credit cards and no big deal. I can just keep spending. There's no accountability. There's no, you know, we call it paying the piper that, wait a minute, you racked up that debt, you pay for it. But when they get to be an adult, then there is a big shock. So I work with another company called Greenlight. It has a debit card for kids. And it's really great because what they do is The parents obviously look over the shoulder of the child, but they encourage the the kids to put money on the card to also be able to, to spend. So I teach earning, saving, spending, and sharing, which is what you do with money. But it takes a village. It takes home. It takes work. It takes everybody to do that. And if we don't do it, there's no way to expect our kids to grow up to be financially responsible. I liken it to driving an automobile. You don't just hand the keys to the automobile, to the kid and go, you know what? Figure it out while you're driving. You have driver's ed. You explain to the child, you may think you're a kid, but the law views you as being an adult. You now have a lethal weapon that can get you in trouble, harm yourself or harm others and to me financial vehicles are the same thing it's like you know training wheels on a bicycle you have to build up to it and that's what i want the parents to do within the household
1: amazing and then final question before we wrap up today we've talked a lot about personal finance and the things that can be really improved but really going forward in the digital age and given the fact that many kids are being exposed to it more, what do you think is really the best medium to teach personal finance for parents to educate personal finance, for kids to learn of personal finance? What's the best medium for kids to do so going forward?
2: I really think it's a multi I think that uh, it's not just the digital world. In fact, I'm working with another company called 111, which um, is for millennials mostly. And what they do is they help millennials budget. But they also have real live people as coaches who also help them. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a multi-medium world out there. It's not just, oh, I can learn about the stock market or crypto or NFTs and then go do it. Exactly. Yeah, you need to also have advisors in your life who are asking you the questions. You know, what's it for? What are you doing? How are you doing? And not get caught up in the betting and the winning and the day trading, which is very easy to do.
0: Yeah, that's very important for people to understand that uh, not everything out there is something you should get right into with your money, even if there's some crazy, uh, like people are promising crazy returns. But I think we talked about some really important things today, the history of women in finance and how that's kind of been a recent development, sadly been a recent development um, that we're pushing for to change the way the systems in our country are run to favor women instead of the same way it's been historically which is put them down in the personal finance sphere I hope this inspires uh, a young woman out there to start taking advantage of her personal finance
1: exactly and just Neil if you have anything coming up whether it be work related Or through any of your other organizations that you want to tell that you want to tell our audience about i'm sure they'd be happy to check it out
2: thank you it's great to work with you guys you're our future you're our next generation you have that voice of of gen z and you know it's something that is needed and i love that you're doing it
0: This episode of Money Moves with Gen Z for Financial Literacy. We hope you learned something today. If you'd like to work with us, visit our website, gen Zforfinlit.org slash intern. Again, that's genzforfinlit.org slash INTERN. You can also follow us on Instagram at Gen Z for Finlit for future updates. We also have a monthly newsletter where we go into depth on everything related to finance and business. You can sign up for it on the website as well. Until next time, it's been Mad Steven.